My name is Diana Riza. Pronouns are she, her, they. And I'm Shantae Hanks. Welcome to the Diversity in Higher Education podcast. Diversity in Higher Education podcast is recorded out of Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, and it was developed to bridge the gap between academia and the community on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm here with our host, Dr. Diana Riza, the university's first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. This morning, we have our guest is Jonathan Wharton. He is a political science professor at Southern Connecticut State University and the interim associate dean of graduate studies. He teaches public policy, economic development, state and local politics, and U.S. political history, specializing in urban and coalition politics. He is also the former chairman of New Haven Republicans. Welcome, Professor Wharton. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I was looking forward to this meeting as we are uh, coming together 24 hours before Election Day, the big day. Election Eve. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I like to call it. It's the quiet before the storm. It's the season. Professor, tell us, um, what should we be expecting? It seems to be contentious, as we probably would all agree. Um, Certainly, um, I I find myself... uh, Meeting, uh, having these conversations with my family in very, uh, you know, being patient and at the same time trying to be flexible because we sit on opposite teams. So what, what should we know coming in, knowing that it's contentious? Well, I don't know if we're going to get the actual results, all the numbers in, even by tomorrow night. It, it might be one of these elections where it, it might take a while. And as much as we're waiting on these results, because a lot of them will be based on development turned in and the you know, voting patterns for tomorrow, we still don't know with all these absentee ballots coming in that it could take still a couple more days longer, not just to tally it up, but just to get a hold of all the ballots that will be out there um, because this is going to be quite a process. Part of the problem has been that each of these states are all doing it so differently. And I think with all the challenges that will come through in the courts, there's that element of it as well that we're already seeing. Do you, you find that this is unprecedented, uh, that this is just a, a unique time? Some people are going back to 2000 with that election and how long it took the results there and how contentious it got. Um, I think this is going to be a little bit more so because we've never seen such a high number of voters doing absentee ballots or vote by mail. Um, I should say, and vote by mail, because it's really two different things. Um, so this is really new terrain for, for so many levels of government, not just the federal government. I'm purely thinking about the state-level government. People aren't talking about the state-level government and the process of all this, unfortunately, even local-level government. Because we're dealing with local election boards. We're dealing with state secretaries of states that are processing all of this and the rush of our voters at the local level. So I, I think we're forgetting that as much as this is all a national election, it's really about the processes of what's taking place at the state and local levels. That gets lost in a lot of the narrative out there. Indeed. You know, it, it's interesting uh, when you talk about, uh, and that is so true, uh, that we're so focused on the national level uh, that it, it's hard to say 
which, which the local is a, a critical, as we all know. I, you know, I keep thinking about, and, and Chante, I don't know, because um, I know you have opinion about this stuff, <laughs> but over the weekend, you know, as I think about, um, with my lens around diversity and as protests um, are, are as folks are coming into the, the election and the voting polls, trying to be um, as home uh, around Black Lives Matter and uh, speaking truth, there has been um, some arrests um, and case in point in North Carolina. And I was just curious, Jonathan, if you had any thoughts around, you know, as we talk about nonviolence and speaking our truth, and yet there were arrests made, and some folk are saying that is this an example of voter suppression? And so, you know, again, what's going on? I, it's, hard to, it's hard to tell right now. It is. I think that because we're in this moment, this era of uncertainty, you know, certainly in terms of public health, absolutely in terms of the economic crisis, even in terms of the voting business, um, we're seeing all kinds of questions and challenges of really our governmental institutions at all, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of directions, at all levels of government. So there is this particular challenge in terms of how to respond to everything that's going on right now. Um, beyond certainly uh, a lot of the, you know, the propaganda and all the talk and speech and the media and the emphasis of all this, we're, we're just seeing that the levels of government that we trust, that we have faith in, are really being tested right now. Absolutely. And there's two, two issues that were raised in, in your discussion already that, as Dr. Ariza said, I do have opinions <laughs> and, and questions about. The first one, though, I wanted to ask you both. Um, do you feel that this is different? I know that, uh, Professor Wharton, you mentioned uh, folks are already talking about similarities to the 2016 election. Um, so I did want to touch on that a bit about the popular vote versus the electoral vote. But I also right. wanted to ask you, do you see also possibly see that we'll have some similarities to the, to the uh, aftermath of the 2000 election with the recount? That's my biggest fear. But from what I've read and the indications have it, this is kind of an interesting twist I just learned in, over the weekend. Apparently, Florida has really tried to take some precautions to prevent the kind of mishaps that we saw. There's more consistency in terms of voting approaches and voting methods as opposed to what happened in, in 2000 because the counties and the local levels of registered voters weren't consistent in their methods and their approaches. Mm -hmm. And at least right now, in terms of ballots being turned in, I'm kind of intrigued by the process that they're, they are counting everything through computer systems that is all pretty you know, high-tech and, and secretive. So we won't know those results until tomorrow. So I, I have a little bit more faith in, in that, at least this, turn, this, this time around, that we're seeing more continuity between the counties and certainly even the technology, technological approaches that they're doing to tabulate everything this time around. In other words, I think there's been some lessons learned from 2000. So I'm not so much concerned about Florida's process, if that makes sense. I'm more concerned for other states that are going to be really the battlegrounds that, that people have focused on, rightfully so. I'm thinking like North Carolina. I'm thinking Ohio and even Pennsylvania, uh, probably my big three. I'm not so much worried about Florida. I'm more worried about those three states than anything else this time around as opposed to 2000, if that makes sense. 
Okay. Yeah, it, it does. And, and I can't wait to see how things unfold. Um, but something that we are seeing, and as Dr. Reza mentioned, about uh, family and, and relationships, my thought is regardless of the outcome, you know, mm. we do have to get back to life as we know it. And I'm, you know, maybe it's the Pollyanna in me that I just feel like we also will need to rebuild many of the relationships that have been severed as a result of this campaign season. Um, and and I, I'm curious of what you both think about that. Can we repair these relationships? Should we? I mean, many folks feel, and we've seen this on social media, that they've seen uh, sides of people that they did not know exist. But I think we can all admit um, both uh, pandemics, if you will, have uh, revealed many things about us as a people, um, and if we're practicing self-reflection, as I think we should, about ourselves. But I, I just hate to think that we can't repair, repair these relationships because, after all, at the end of the day, we're all Americans. So what do you guys I think, think part of that? The, yeah, I, I think part of the issue here is that we tend to forget that underneath everything, you know, there have been biases throughout American history throughout American communities, uh, it just tends to come to light more during an economic crisis moment, right? During the Great Depression, we saw a similar pattern where there's a great deal of discrimination taking place because it was the Great Depression. In fact, even back in the 1890s, Jim Crow laws were created in the first place in response to the economic crisis in the 1890s. Uh, and so there are these moments that sometimes when, especially during an economic, uh, I don't want to say collapse, but during crisis that we're facing right now, that a lot of these uh, elements of uh, prejudice, racism, xenophobia will come out. It, it's just an unfortunate pattern in America. So no matter what the results will be tomorrow, um, it's not going to take place overnight. What I am hopeful of is that, you know, maybe within the next year or so, you know, no matter the outcome, there's at least a resolve among our elected officials, all levels of government, to really have set a tone and finding a pathway to... Uh, continuity and and certainly not even so much rebuilding, but just communicating the direction where things should head. You know, I, I want to, I, I, that sounds hopeful, and I, I thank you both um, for that. Uh, I just uh, keep thinking as I look at businesses, for example, that are concerned about increased riots as we've seen um, across the month, and that and, and, and the news is, is, as we think about the current uh, current President Trump, from um, at least what the news is indicating, that he might prematurely declare victory um, and and still ballots are being counted. I have I truly have concern, like I've heard and seen from businesses, that this this um, early decision making prematurely premature early decision making makes create more havoc, you know, that that the healing of our families and relationships and friends may take longer only because of this constant in, in, in that inaccurate um, data coming out or facts coming out. And so I don't know, Jonathan, is there is there a way to sort of uh can we hold our, ourselves accountable and responsible? Can the broadcast, I mean, are there techniques out there that can say, regardless of what the voice the president might be saying, 
you know, how do we hold ourselves to saying without without really going to the streets and really taking having habits because of what people are saying um, and and not ready and shouldn't be ready to say, uh, you know, any any thoughts around that? Because I that's what I keep seeing in the news. One of the key elements that many political scientists tend to believe is, and it's been patterns of this, is something called um, political alignment. And what ends up happening is that within political parties, we see shifts taking place, generational shifts, for example, um, maybe issue shifts that will cause a party or maybe even a group or coalition to change focus or change directions or alter their agenda approaches. So I'm, I'm waiting for that. We're way overdue for that. And so uh, one of the things I'm most mesmerized by in terms of the response rate for tomorrow will be how many young, young people are going to step up to the plate and vote and be a part of this process. And that could lead towards this, um, this, this kind of political alignment that I'm speaking towards. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes a while. But if the numbers end up coming back where it's higher than 50% compared to previous elections, because young people generally don't. Just the numbers have barely been anywhere around 40%, maybe 45 at best. But if it ends up being at 55, even 50, 55%, that's significant. We haven't had seen a turnout in that big in a couple of generations because it's just not a reliable voting block. Younger people generally do not engage in voting numbers compared to certainly older people, right? Older people generally, you know, it's almost 80%. So it would be interesting to see the kind of cause effect of a higher, younger voter turnout. And if some younger people would consider seriously running for office or engaging in the political process internally within the system. Now, I think it's no secret. My students make light of me, Diane, that I'm an institutionalist. All right, and I get attacked for it. I do. My students really attack me that I am just, you know, believing in the system. It's not so much believing in the system. I have real issues with the system. But I am more of a person who would rather be tactical and finding ways of working with the system that we have. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying it's terrific. I'm just saying it's better to find approaches that way. And so we could see that in terms of turnout, and it could yield people to participate and be engaged. And that could be something in terms of an actual change that we're talking about. I keep thinking about um, at college, and you know, Jonathan, you and I have talked a bit about this, um, this whole getting ready months ago yeah. as to, right, you know, there, there's that level of responsibility, uh, not being a, a parent, but certainly feel responsible for my students. Mm-hmm. Say, in in light of what happened um, not too long ago in 2016, I still remember that so clear in my head as to the disappointment of what we thought was going to be, at least for some, and then what 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 the outcome was. And mm-hmm. and how do you how do you provide, particularly for our students? a way, uh, you know, you, you mentioned youth and the turnout, and I think that is such a positive statement to, to see what that number is going to look like uh, tomorrow and, and the days to come. But when when there is that level of disappointment where, you know, we've seen in the news that votes, that what we might see as voter turnout and votes coming in might look different with the electoral vote, vote and so there might be more disappointment early on or later disappointment, how do you, how do we come together as a community, particularly on campuses um, for our students to have that, that healthy conversation to say, it didn't turn out the way you wanted it, but let's talk about 
something, what, what you mentioned earlier, that political alignment, what, what would be strategy around how to deal uh, with, with the trauma? Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. I think many of you all know um, a student, or at least he was a student, he's part-time at least, and I think he's going to return back to part-time next semester, is Justin Farmer. You know, as a result of the election the last time around, he stepped up to the plate and he ran for councilman um, and won in Hamden. And he's tried running this year for uh, state Senate. Now, he lost the primary, but he's a good example. He's one of those students, Diane, that I'm talking about, who stepped up, got engaged, got involved. And granted, was not with the Republican Party. Not that I cared one way or the other, but he was really about trying to be involved and get engaged. And look what he started around New Haven so far. All right. So that's at least an attempt. If we saw more people like him on either side, that could be tremendous. Part of the problem is that we see a significant age gap, uh, generation gap, among not just voters, but even among those who are actually engaged in the political process. And what I'm speaking towards is, even at the local level, if you go to a Republican or a Democrat town committee where the political parties run, you know, operate at the local level, it's overwhelmingly older people. I mean, people well in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's, it's not even, you know, people, it's barely even people in the 30s and 40s. So it would be tremendous if we saw a change there at certainly the, the local level, but even at the state level of the local parties. We don't see nearly that same engagement as well. So that's why I'm going to be especially intrigued by not just the voter turnout, which is very important. I want to see what's going to happen in terms of down the road. Are we going to see younger candidates or those who have been disengaged, never been part of the process in the first place, now one of one for office. And I'm not speaking for, for Congress or for president. I'm speaking towards what's, you know, can they step up to the plate and be involved at the, in their towns and at the state level. And so I've seen some of early indicators of that with Justin as an example, among others. Um, and so I'd like to see what will happen down the road another year or two, especially since we, we know we have a gubernatorial and statewide elections coming up in, in the next, you know, very soon. I just want to say that Justin Farmer is great. <laughs> he has such infectious energy. Oh, my goodness. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, shout out to Justin. Um, also, I don't want to move away from this. You, you are both talking about young people and getting them involved in, and helping them understand and trust the process. Professor Wharton, your students will probably love me for this next question because I kind of want to put you on the spot. Uh, sure, go like for a, it. Like a pop quiz. Um, <laughs> I understand. I can wrap my head around the electoral college process. But, mm. Mm, right? So dis <laughs> despite my experience teaching, I think I like to think I can teach almost anything um, that I understand and that I know how to do. But the electoral right. college may be the one thing that um, it, it's, yeah, it's like one of those, I don't know, physics problems or something like that or uh what is it trig i don't think i could do it so um right but i i i really find myself in conversations i mean i'm sure we've all had conversations with family friends social media what have you that's the one that stumps me because there are some folks that believe because of the results of 2016 which is really fresh in their mind that what's the point if you can win the popular vote, but the electoral college um, renders a different number and, and that changes everything. And so I actually had someone say to me, um, a former alumna actually, say to me, 
why should we vote at all? And it was more rhetorical because I know this mm-hmm. person um, in order to be a friend of mine votes. But <laughs> it, it was rhetorical right. almost to where he has children as well. How do we explain that? So I, I, I made a mental note and said, well, I'm going to be in a conversation with Professor Wharton. So I'm sure I'll walk away. <laughs> with some nuggets on how to do that and to try to do it somewhat briefly. I, I know it's challenging, right. but w- what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have to explain it almost every year, every semester, especially when I teach U.S. government. But even when I teach state and local government, I still find myself explaining it. So the way I see it is you have to keep it in simple terms. Look, <clears throat> voting obviously makes a difference, but some buckets, as I like to call it, are more important than others. So think of it as having 50 different buckets in a room, right? And since we just went through a trick-or-treating here, <laughs> <laughs> you think of it this way in terms of what kids have the candies in which buckets. And so when you think of it that way, there are going to be some buckets that will be worth more value than the others because of the, you know, the numbers that they reflect in terms of population uh, dynamics than other, you know, states. And so this has just been the process of the foundation of, of our country. I think many Americans forget that even though we have 538, you know, delegates there for the uh, uh, electoral college, in reality, um, our in for the presidency, our our U.S. Senate was voting voted this way as well. Um, we had a process like this up until um, you know the 1920s when they made an amendment change for the U.S. Senate to do popular vote. So I think we tend to assume that this is such an archaic process. It's been around, you know, for a while, yes, but it was also one of those things where even the U.S. Senate was decided this way because there was such a concern early on by America's founders that the large states would win out. And so they wanted to make sure that the small states had some power as well. Um, so there, there's a historical uh, process in the calculus to, to all of this, and it is difficult to get your head around. But see it more in the sense that some buckets are worth more value than others because based on their the population size. And, and and if I could follow up, that two seventy electoral count. Can you can you help me with that one too? Because um, I, I should know better. But how did we get to the two seventy? Like uh, well, because the five thirty eight is uh, is the, yeah. So that's the that's the actual count. And the way I explain it to my students, which makes sense when you think about it, is. All right, we have 435 House of Representative members. We have 100 U.S. Senators. All right, right there, we have, you know, uh, 535. But then the other three delegates from D.C., the Bahamas, um, you know, Puerto Rico, they, they, they make up the other three. So the territories, at least, in Commonwealth. So that's how we get to 538. So in other words, I, I, I tell my students, so now that you know the status, how many delegates do we have in, you know, coming from the Connecticut delegation here? In Connecticut, right? That's always a good little Jeopardy question, you know? And of course, I have to remind them that, you know, there are five congressional districts, and obviously we have two U.S. senators. So there you go. There's our delegate count for Electoral College in Connecticut, seven. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Thank you. Yes. Of course, no problem. <laughs> Look, I should I should not be so I, I'm embarrassed to even be asking the question, but I have to say I my relatives were asking, and I, I was having a hard time with it too. <laughs> it is very, you know, it's so funny, Diane. It's one of those things where it's so simple, but it's so hard to wrap your head around it. That you have to make it so simple anyway to do it. <laughs> 
So I'm used to that. As a history um, major, right, I, I, I just have to ask you, um, and, and you as a, a history professor, um, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, earlier times when we saw similar behavior, and you mm. mentioned um, Jim Crow, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking in, in terms of what we've seen over the past week or so with the early voting, we've seen intimidation tactics. We've, yeah. you know, we've seen folks really um, nervous about going out to the polls. We've seen them meeting folks with rifles at the polls uh, to intimidate them with, which, you know, I really don't understand that because once you're in there at the booth, no one knows, you know, what decision you're making. So I'm not quite understanding what, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm trying to make something make sense that doesn't. So right. with that being said, though, it does bring you back to a time when, um, you know, blacks were intimidated uh, and, and, and threatened about going to the polls, right, about voting. So mm -hmm. what do you think of that? I mean, I haven't seen it in Connecticut where we are, but, you know, as we know, um, in, in justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So I'm concerned sure. about what's happening throughout the country. Well, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, unfortunately, the ugliness of Americans tend to come out during those, those crises of economic moments. And so we're, we're seeing some of this. The other thing is, is that, um, you know, it's, funny, it's interesting. I was speaking about this on WNPR just this past week with uh, Dr. Brown Dean, who I think you all know is Absolutely. a Quinnipiac. Mm -hmm. And we were stressing this together. Um, during moments like this, fear is often, it's oftentimes weaponized, as, as she had explained it, which is very true. During political moments like this one, where we know it's charged up, it's been ramped up by the media, it's been certainly politicized by the candidates, uh, and really all levels of government. I'm oftentimes struck by how even local officials will politicize a lot of this national-level stuff. And I'm a little taken back by it. So it will kind of really charge up a, a base unfortunately, and ugliness of a face to really be involved and get, you know, and, and to have these tactical approaches in their heads to prevent whatever they think is going on. So fear is just to get philosophical. Uh, it's one of these innate things that really motivate people to do, you know, extreme measures and tactics that should be obviously illegal and unconstitutional, but it gets politicized and it's unfortunate but we see, we've seen this a lot in American history. Yeah, Jonathan, I was going to, uh, just um, coming off of what you just said and, and fear, and how, how does that influence or relate to uh, maybe a, a contrast with the 2016 and today? Do you see the, when you talk about the younger vote, um, much higher, hopefully, but do you see a diversity of votes as well in that, as you're looking at, um, is this turnout looking different in that way too compared to um, 2016? I that's the thing I just don't know, Diane. It's it's interesting because in previous elections, just like recent elections, maybe in the last 10, 12 years, whatever years you want to go back, even to the early 2000s, the numbers for uh, national races for presidency for Congress is usually hovering it around. 40, 45%. It really is. It barely breaks 50 if we're ever lucky. And so we just don't know, will this yield to that? Now, there's one caveat I did not mention, and maybe I should mention it now. I'm especially concerned among those people who 
are on the outside, the fringes. We have a lot of people who are newly registered voters. I think you know, just saw the numbers this weekend in Connecticut, where we're seeing an increase of two to three percent of unaffiliated voters, and many of them are younger people. They're not affiliated with political party. They don't like either party. I see this in my classes over and over again. Okay, so they're registered to vote, great, but then they're not affiliated with the political party. That scares me because then they're not part of the actual process. They don't want to be engaged, and they're not participating in the primary system. And remember, Connecticut, we have a close primary, so you have to have your party affiliation in advance of the primary election. And I'm sorry to stress it over and over again, but primaries matter. Um, that yes, those are going to be do. your candidates Absolutely. at the ticket. Yeah, absolutely. You know this. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I don't need to tell you. You know, you, you totally right. get it. You yeah. totally get it. I'm, I mean, I'm <laughs> preaching to the choir. But then what do I deal, how do I deal with younger people where they've been frustrated with both parties. They were going with somebody on purpose like a Bernie Sanders, who I have to remind students are, you know, is not a Democrat, even though, yes, he does caucus with the Democrats. That's great. That's nice. But just because he caucus and you didn't vote doesn't necessarily mean you're part of the process in the system. And that was abundantly clear four years ago. What happened in that election in 2016? Do you think that'd be a wake-up call? So I'm really concerned among these younger voters who are now newly registered. And I'm not just saying in Connecticut, although the numbers are really clear in Connecticut. I've been looking at the numbers in the South, like in Atlanta area. So many of them are younger people who are registered, but they're not affiliated with local parties. That frightens me um, because then they're not actual, they're not going to be a part of the actual um, institutional system. And they're going to be frustrated with whatever the results will be tomorrow. And I wonder among those people who are, let's say the Bernie supporters are going to actually vote tomorrow. Maybe they won't, you know? Wow. Maybe they won't. They didn't anyway the last time around. So who's to say that they will this time around? We don't know that because these are unaffiliated voters. No answer to the question, which makes sense. I mean, too early to tell as far as how is this leaning towards the diversity of votes mm. uh, and religious vote. I mean, we know that last time, um, which I was surprised, but uh, I believe it was um, NPR talking about the importance of how um, uh, Catholics uh, the, that we talk about evangel- the evangelical vote, but but also um, Catholics and how they lean. And so, how how do we think about that diversity of vote, whether it's race, ethnicity, religion, and how is that looking? As we've been talking more about it in this election than ever before, certainly the Latinx, Latino, Latina vote, and what does that look like for these, these states that? Um, such as Texas, such as Florida, uh, and, and where are they leaning? And uh, Florida, for me, is always interesting because I've lived here for a number of years, and uh, when you saw the, the change of migration from, from Cuba to um, Nicaragua to then now um, a large influx of Puerto Ricans that tend to vote uh, more Democratic I was curious as to how would that how is that looking different in this election versus uh, 2016. But but again, no, I, I've, been, I've been mesmerized by that. I, I could not stop listening to NPR this weekend, and they were talking about this in terms of the diversity of the Latino community. And you know, it's unfortunate sometimes the media tends to cast you know um, Latinos as a monolith. No yeah. surprise. Um, I think they do that to all minority groups, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's a tendency because it's very nuanced, um, and a lot of it, a lot of the the technical term that people scientists love to use is you know cleavages. 
you know, the things that kind of divide and, and unite us. And um, what ends up happening is that when it comes to religious causes or concerns, something like, let's say, pro-life or pro-choice, we can see a, a lot of internal divisions within, let's say, a, a community or communities. And so to get to your point, Diane, uh, certainly on the abortion issue, that's something that's been very pronounced, and we just don't know those numbers. I've been taken back, for instance, that among apparently Latino men in particular, that there is this almost quarter uh, percent support uh, towards Trump, um, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, and for African-American men, uh, it's, it's hovering at almost half that, but close to 20%. So, but then with women, it's the complete opposite. <laughs> so you get, the, you get the racial and even some of the internal you know, dynamics, even religious and political, but then you get the gender dynamic into it. Right. And it just gets very uh, complex. And it shouldn't be, but it is. I think many people tend to forget that in many Latino and definitely many black communities, uh, we are overwhelmingly socially conservative uh, in so many, so many reasons. But the assumption is that we're liberal, so we have to be Democrats. Yeah, that's not always the case. That's right. That's right. Well, and I think that back to Sante, the point of the nuance of, of all of our racial ethnic communities, I think there's some truth to that. I would also say that with a Latinx, Latino, Latina voter, it also is very tied to country of, of, or homeland, and that whatever relationship historically the U.S. had with that particular country, um, that is hard to let go of. Um, and so I, I, I've seen that over time with immigrants coming in. And uh, whatever relationship back in the day, in Cuba, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example, um, how the even looking at generational shifts um, between those who were older that came into you know late fifties um, post Castro uh, the post revolution to uh, the current younger generation of Cuban American generation even there there you see a, a shift in in thought um, sometimes more conservative sometimes more liberal but even within the same community. But I think it's very, I don't know, Jonathan, you may disagree with that, but but I think that the historical financial relationship between U.S. and that particular country does lean in to um, how a particular individual or group might vote. Right. Sometimes it's a milestone moment that will kind of shape an individual, right? And especially if they're coming from the homeland and, and those moments where they might have experienced it, let's say, going back to your example in Cuba, compared to somebody who's younger, who's newer to his country, second, third generation, it might not nearly resonate as much. So those kind of milestone moments can shape a worldview and, and certainly a perspective, politically speaking. Well, one thing I can say is despite the climate of this particular election, this is my season. I love campaign season and election <laughs> eve almost as much as Christmas Eve. I, I promise you? you, I do. <laughs> I do. I I woke up this morning with this extra pep in my step, also because we got that extra hour as a result of daylight uh. savings. But really, honestly, I love this time of year. I mean, I, I really it 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 just makes me all warm and fuzzy. I, I can't deny it. Although I, I I also have to say, um, in contrast that it's disheartening too, because I love this season to see what this particular uh, campaign, this particular election has done to us as a country. Um, it, it's really, it's disheartening. Um, seeing retailers, 
right? In major cities like New York, D.C., Los Angeles, they're taking precautions by boarding up their windows. Um, and they're worrying and anticipating protests similar to those we saw as a result of the murder of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks this past spring. They're thinking the outcome of this election, either regardless of which candidate wins, um, that they think that that's the type of outcry we're going to see. And I liken this to the broken windows theory. And let me explain why. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I know that's like, uh, it, it's, it's totally a, a different concept than what I'm talking about. But I liken it to this because I question, will this boarding up of the stores actually beget the results they actually fear? I, I didn't think that we would it, or I don't think that we're going to see destruction of property. I fear more incidents involving direct contact and issues with individuals and groups versus property. We started seeing this. Um, so that's my concern. When I mentioned earlier on regarding the intimidation tactics that are being done already with the early voting, my concern is that type of civil um, I guess we've been hearing it, you know, a civil war, a race war. I'm more concerned about that than uh, the anticipation of uh, stores being damaged. Well, I, I, the thing is, is that, you know, for me, this time of the year, I, I, it's weird for me. It's very awkward because um, I technically don't study elections. <laughs> you know, I study uh public policy. So I'm more about result oriented mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. measurements and outcomes after the elections. And single policies have passed, whether they've been addressed, how they're addressing things, especially at the state and local level. So for me, I, I, I don't get worried, but I'm not excited. Um, I tend to just, uh, it takes a while to see the actual results. Uh, and so I won't know a lot of these outcomes for a couple of days at least. Um, so for me, I'm looking sometimes at those early indicators that point towards some kind of direction. But uh, as my friends have jokingly told me and reminded me, because I, you know, in the last week or so, maybe even two, I've been on NBC 30 and 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 NPR, um, speaking more towards what's going on in the national races. They have to remind me, yeah, but like national politics and elections aren't your specialty. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> State and local government is, and public policy. So I'm sometimes kind of thrown in the middle. Of, of a space and a place that it's not that I don't know that I'm not familiar with. I tend to get a little, um, I need some Pepto-Bismol to get through it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you know, maybe some Alka-Seltzer. Um, I, I, you know, even my own students know, they always make fun of me on Twitter saying, yes, yes, we know Professor Wood, he's more stuck on national, local level. That's where you see the results. That's where you see the, the concerns come out as opposed to the national level. Because I kind of checked out from the national level politically, spiritually. I mean, you know, I worked in Congress for years. Diane knows us for, for six years. We're both at the aisle in the 90s, and I was very proud to do so. Um, and so this environment that we've been in, really, let's stress it, it's been almost a generation now that it's been this way. Um, so for me, I checked out a long time ago. And so um, I, I, I'm really kind of burned out from all of this. You know, it's good to hear that, Jonathan. Not, not that I'm happy that you're burned mm-hmm. out, but, but I have to say that, if anything... And I, I think I've said this to you, Shante, as well as uh, the public, that in my years as a chief diversity officer since um, 2016, I've never um, felt like I had um, a bo- more bosses in my life other than President Joe Bertolino. I, um, I find that at the national level, chief diversity officers are more managed than ever by, the na- by national politics. 
and much more, much more so than local. And um, it, it's um, actually not only agonizing, but um, it has uh, weakened our focus on the work that has to continue to, to happen in order for this country to get into a better place uh, racially, um, um, ethnically, religiously. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping, I find myself this, this week, um, and, and truly, Jonathan, um, any programming or event that you might be doing as we're talking about this in, 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 in the most supportive way is um, I'm hoping more of that is happening to, to help us through this because I find it debilitating more so than exhilarating. So, Shantae, I'm glad to hear that you are are still awake. <laughs> I know, really. Well, you know, as someone that ran for office while I was here as a student at Southern and just recently in 2018, I mean, it's it's kind of just in my blood. I really do love it. And um, to echo both your points, local politics are extremely important. Local and state elections are what yes. impact you the most at your day-to-day yes. life. So while we have exactly. very attentive audiences right now because of the national election and folks seem to pay attention every four years, I always take the opportunity to remind them it's important to get involved with your local politics. Who's in your, your municipal offices and, and your boards of commission and, and what have you, your zoning boards, um, those are the folks that impact your day-to-day life more than the national um, level elections and even more than the president who's in Congress who's your senators that affects legislation that will affect your day-to-day even more I'm always saying it <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I want to say yes I, I fully agree but that has not been my experience um, and certainly as I talk to other chief diversity officers I think we're all with, waiting with bated breath um, on our for this, for this week, and hopefully we'll know sooner than later. Absolutely. Well, I, Jonathan, um, can you leave us with, um, if, if I may, if I can ask, um, sure. As we're all turning to the TVs um, and the uh, radios and podcasts and and uh, other social media, uh, what is what any any guiding light for what should we be as we're paying attention, because some people have said, I am not turning on anything. I'm <laughs> yes. staying away from it all. Mm-hmm. But for those who want to chime in and want to turn in, um, you said it earlier um, when we started today, but like any, any tidbits for how we approach the news and approach, you know, as we're listening, as we're listening and as we're, you know, viewing the updates. Well, I'm kind of intrigued at least that uh, apparently eight, Eight, uh, you know, Associated Press and National Public Radio have been in agreement that they're not going to announce things early or prematurely. So that's kind of interesting that, that they both kind of decided that at the end of last week, um, which is intriguing because it really will put the cable news networks in, into a box, whether they're going to declare any of these states early. And I would just say, you know, even if we get the results of even half the states let's say by nine o'clock, that'd be impressive, but it, it, it'll probably go longer than that. That we probably won't get maybe the results of half the states until maybe 10 or 11 or even later. Um, so just kind of hold on, watch on and just beware of certainly some of the cable news where they might be very aggressive as they tend to be anyway in the past. 
Um, and and I, I wouldn't go with them 100%. I've always been concerned about them. You know, I will watch, I'll admit, cable news on election night. Um, I tend to pay more attention to um, Twitter and certainly Associated Press and even NPR um, and even Reuters because um, I'm more about the newswire services than anything else, if that helps. Yeah. Yeah. So any predictions, Jonathan? Anybody oh, no. Else? No, I don't give predictions. No, no. Come on. no, 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 no. I don't, I don't do that. That's one thing I'm, I'm proud of. I, I don't do such a thing. Thank God. You know, yeah, I just no, don't. I, I respect that. Yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on your end? <laughs> I got to be honest with you. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I thought one way and then this weekend I thought another. So although I would love to say who I think is going to win, which doesn't necessarily mean that who I'm, I'm rooting for. I really, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think what I do think is that it really could go either way. I will say that. Um, I honestly, you, d- despite what we're seeing in the polls, I think it could go either way. And I wouldn't be surprised either way. Um, so... <sighs> I'm going, I'm going to predict that Joe wins. Why not? Let's make it interesting. Um, and, and what I'd love to see is what happens after um, to see if we were right or, or wrong, meaning those of us that have predictions. That's what I'm thinking. However, I wouldn't be surprised if um, President Trump wins. I, I really, it, it, <laughs> Yeah. It's probably the first time, too, that I really, no, I won't say the first time, 2008, I, I really wasn't certain. And, and you know, I know who, who I really wanted to win, but I wasn't sure. Um, whereas in 2016, I thought Hillary was going to win. So, <laughs> I mean, really, I thought she was going to win by a large margin. So you really never know what these things, but I'm going to predict just... Um, you know, just to participate, I, I'm going to say that I think it's going to be Biden. Yeah, I'm leaning more towards um, not not that I don't want to say much, but it seems like when I it, it changes <laughs> week to week. So um, right now it feels flat. Um, mm-hmm. It feels, and I'm just hoping that my prediction is that uh, my relatives will love me either way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, I mean, well, the I thing is, so. is that I know, really, ladies, right? We'll have to adopt her. Uh, <laughs> no, right? <laughs> wow. No, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a matter of really, as I've been stressing over and again, the turnout. You know, if we get anywhere close to 70% or even over 70%, it, it could make the biggest difference. But remember what I said at the beginning, it really doesn't matter in which case. So pay attention to that, that turnout number, certainly in specific yeah. states. That will help yield towards what, what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, because right. generally, Republicans do show up, um, you know, when pressed during like a midterm election or when it comes to a close election. The results right now that we're seeing, at least in terms of early indicators, people voting, have been leaning more Democrat, or at least let's say unaffiliated voters who lean Democrat. There's no doubt about that. But we have to see what that overall turnout will be come election day. And really, whether the Republicans make up for it or not, or those who are leaning Republican, let me say that. 
those leaners. Because right, right. that's really what makes an election. I think many Americans forget that the majority of Americans, and even the majority of people in Connecticut are unaffiliated voters. So it's the people right. that mean one or the other that really matter. Um, not just in terms of those who are turning in, you know, their, their ballots early, or, you know, um, but also the fact there are absentee ballots, but also the fact of uh, what is it going to be on election day? What's that number going to be? Well, uh, Dr. Ariza, the next time we come together, uh, hopefully we will have those results and we will learn if I should have put a wager somewhere or not. <laughs> oh wow she's making it more interesting i right? love it that's what i was thinking all in fun really all in fun at the end of the day well more to come right jonathan absolutely um, we'll stay supportive and um look forward to uh hearing more from your programming uh that i think you're doing right jonathan um, yes anything, any, yeah could you say a little bit more about that sure uh, my chairman and I, along with Fritz Piscatelli, uh, who you all know, oh, we're planning to host. Yeah, exactly. Uh, more of like my, my Twitter foil. Um, <laughs> we are coming together to do a little panel discussion um, on election results on Wednesday, 1 o'clock. So we'll be doing that online. Uh, it's going to be a Facebook, I think, a live event, if I remember correctly. So that'll be at 1 o'clock on Wednesday. So that, that should be interesting. I, I think, Dante, I don't know. Do you know Professor Butterbottle? Did you ever have him as a student? No? Okay. He's now the chairman. He took over for Professor Paulson, uh, who I'm sure you, you know. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I figured you did. By the way, he's the one who's really all about that political alignment business. That's a lot of his research. He's really into elections and turnout and all that. So he's really, you know, he parts into that. Um, so Professor Butterbaugh took, took over from his department chair a couple of years back. And so uh, it'll be interesting to get his, his spin on it because uh, he's, he's very much a, a proud you know, Democrat centrist, or he'd like to say a blue dog. So <laughs> I always like to hear his two cents on things. Yes. Well, well I'll thank say, you. Professor Warren, I, again, many thanks for your insight. Sure. I, I find that uh, even though you claim that you don't understand the national um, as well as the local, <laughs> I always find it <laughs> and insightful. So, um, Thank you. This, uh, this has been really uh, helpful, and hopefully we'll uh, all circle back again. Like to like to hear your point of view after it's all said and done. Oh, absolutely. Would love that. Indeed. Right.